It is hard from the outside to realise the impact of being told the day you become Prime Minister that the country's broke. The world has sat silent as they have pursued what's called neoliberal economic policies and in fact they have failed. But you embarked on that model, did you not? The whole essence of leadership is to have a view, to have the capacity to see a different world. In the early days, the slogans were the treaty is a fraud. And on reflection, of course, they were absolutely right. The fact that some found that disquieting, unsettling, was of, in all honesty, little consequence. The government could have gone the three years, but then other events intervened. There's always those eyeing the job. And as we know, while I was away, others were plotting. Is there a sense of betrayal, though? Betrayal's a very strong word. Your personal ratings had a massive... Or they were the lowest in polling history. Nobody will beat me either. I mean, uh, I've got that, I'm sure, forever. Do I believe that the gap between those who have and those who don't at the moment is too big? Yes. This is why we are now getting uh, many revolutions around the world. The world has sat silent as they have pursued what's called neoliberal economic policies and in fact they have failed. They have failed to produce economic growth and what growth there has been has gone to the few at the top. I mean, there's never been such a concentration of wealth in the top 1%, in fact, half of 1% than there is in the world today. So, demonstrably, that model needs to change. But you embarked on that model, did you not? No, not to... I mean, you can start down road, but you don't have to follow that road. You actually have absolute rights to change and to vary and to modify policies. I mean... Uh, it would be ridiculous beyond belief to say policies were introduced in December 1990 are the f factors that are delivering inequality in but New Zealand But if you deregulate a labour market, if you privatise assets, if you cut taxes, which all happened in the 1990s, then aren't you... And since. Yes. Isn't that neoliberalism? Well, I... Can, you can call it that if you want to. I don't have any problem Do you with it. I don't it, have do any problem call with calling it that. Let's call it what you'd like to call it. What would you call I it? I just called it pragmatic policies to address an issue. But you believe now, sitting here today, that neoliberalism has failed? Absolutely. Jim Bolger swept to power in 1990 as voters punished Labour for a turbulent term when the country went through three Prime Ministers. The stock market had crashed in 1987, the Roger Douglas-led economic revolution had lost its appeal and National won its most comprehensive victory since 1951. Voters never exactly embraced Jim Bolger, but over nearly three terms as Prime Minister, he was to drive massive economic and social reforms, reshape race relations and lead the country into the new era of MMP. But for a day in October 1990, and it was only for a day, the King Country farmer looked to have pulled down the curtain on the Rogernomics era with an old-fashioned touch, the promise of a return to what he called the decent society. I took over the leadership of the National Party in '86. I uh, was already uh, very apprehensive where the uh, country was going under the Longy David, uh, Longy Douglas leadership, I, I thought they were building castles in the air and not substance. Did you agree with what they were doing, with the thrust of what they were doing? No, a lot of it was wrong. Uh, I mean, of course, the thrust, you can always argue to uh, reduce this or that regulation and to liberalise something. 
Did you find that getting your vision across, a decent society, I think that you termed it, was that a hard message to sell? Oh, absolutely, because while people could nod with that, and uh, I've always quite wondered how I got it past the National Party, um, because I'm sure, well, I know they didn't all think that was a good slogan, but that captured, in a way, what I thought New Zealand should that, aim for. That's interesting, because you say that as an aside, that they didn't think it was a good slogan. Is that, is that right? They quite oh, you can go on forever as to what it was or wasn't to some people. For me, what was more important, it captured something that we should aim to achieve. It was your idea? Yes. And a decent society is one where everybody gets a fair go. See, one of the great ethos of being a New Zealander, a Kiwi, is fairness. And uh, it's very interesting. I've got a book on the bookshelf which is titled Fairness or Freedom. Americans talk always about freedom. Every sentence has freedom in it. We talk much more about fairness. And I was in that concept of fairness is what I wanted, that every... A member of society had a fair opportunity to succeed, to make progress, to look after their families, provide for their children and so forth. And, and these are conceptually quite difficult issues for some people. Uh, it's easy to say, but even more difficult is to put in place policies to achieve them. Not perhaps what you'd expect from a National Party leader, especially one who led during Ruth Richardson's radical reforms. But the values that drove Jim Bolger stemmed from a childhood in the Taranaki, the son of Irish Catholic immigrants, and his marriage in 1963 to Joan. They moved north, and Jim Bolger soon moved into politics. Joan was an essential part of my leadership, but you have to go back quite a few years to uh, my movement, our movement, two years after we married to a new farm in Tikawiti. A whole bunch of people approached me to stand for the National Party nomination. And I remember the discussion very well with Joan on that because that was the crucial decision. We at that stage had five young children. The youngest at that stage was about 18 months. Uh, this was a huge call as to whether we would or we wouldn't. And, and Joan said in effect, well, if that's where you think you can make some good or do some good, then I guess you better stand. So I came in in opposition, then moved into government immediately after the 75 election that Rob Muldoon uh, led the party to victory and was in government uh, or in a leadership role in the party from that day forward. After National lost power in 1984, he and Jim McClay, the two Jims, challenged Muldoon for the leadership. McClay won, but only lasted 16 months against a rampant Labour Party. As the caucus came and said, we must make a change and uh, we want you to be leader, and I said, if that's what you want, I'll do it. But I did not set out to destabilise Jim McClay or anything like that. Uh, we'd made a choice. Um, I've always, I suppose, from the time I was a, a young lad, always had a view on what's right and what's wrong, what can be done, what should be done. I uh, grew up in very modest circumstances. My first job away from home was as a nine-year-old to help a uh, World War I veteran to milk his cows when his son went away to train for the Air Force for World War II. So leadership and the burdens and responsibilities of leadership, I guess, were always with me. Why? I'm not quite sure, but they were. So I was always the one who stepped forward and said, yes, we should. You were given the nickname of the Great Helmsman 
why do you think that that attached to you? I've often wondered that, but I think it's probably because I did tend to think about where and how do you lead. And I guess helmsmen do that uh, in their role. To my mind, a successful leader has to know what the end goal is, if not in great precision, what the end goal is in terms of what you hope to have achieved in that space. Let me give you an example. It was a wartime measure that was brought in that shops were closed on Saturdays. And then, of course, there were exceptions, you know, and uh, exceptions always make a very difficult rule to run. But much more important was society had moved and more and more women were in full-time employment. And we still had the nonsense that the only time they could shop was Friday evening. But it brought you a lot of grief. Of all the things I did in politics, I had bigger protests against changing the law to just permit Saturday shopping. The only grief New Zealand have now is somebody tried to reintroduce the old law. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an exercise in leadership. You, you have to move at times against the, the common perception or the majority view. People are nervous of change. It creates uncertainty. And the only way to make change work effectively is to move from stability to the new stability quite quickly. Don't dither in the middle. Those leadership lessons learned as Labour Minister back in the 1970s were pivotal years later, in 1990, when Bolger found himself Prime Minister. On the Saturday night, he celebrated victory. But the next morning, the phone rang. 17 hours after I won the election, I had officials in panic in Wellington demanding to see me as the incoming Prime Minister that day, Sunday, and I said I'd be there on Monday. They rang back and said they had to see me Sunday afternoon. Contemplate that. Just won the biggest election victory in New Zealand's history. Allegedly, the books were balanced. The country's economy was in great shape. That was the story the Mike Moore-led Labour government had put out, and his finance minister, David Cagle, up and down the country. All a fiction, all a lie. So the officials demanded, there's no other word, that I appear before them on Sunday afternoon, and I did. And quietly and with a pale face, they said, you need to take over, Mr Bolger, because the Bank of New Zealand has to report by Friday, and if it's not uh, given support by then, it will collapse. And what did you say? I said, not my problem, go and see the Prime Minister. He's Mr Moore, in case you don't know his name. That's what I said to them. Don't bother me, you knew this last week. So they got a little paler. And, uh, but they said, Prime Minister. I said, no, I'm not Prime Minister. Well, of course, what I had to do, I invited, I think, uh, McKinnon, my deputy, Bill Birch and Ruth Richardson to come to Wellington that afternoon. I'm not sure they all got there that afternoon. And we started to work on a um, rescue package for the Bank of New Zealand. And uh, Bank of New Zealand at that stage uh, I think had 40% of the commercial paper in New Zealand. So if it collapsed, half of New Zealand's companies would have collapsed. It was that big a deal? It was that big a deal. It is hard from the outside and the distance of 20-some years to realise the impact of being told the day you become Prime Minister that the country's broke, that what you thought was a strong economy was a weak economy, that the largest bank that you owned 80-some percent of was bankrupt. You have to start changing your thinking very quickly at that stage. Do you remember how you actually felt at that time? Angry. Angry 
at the lies that had been told in the campaign, that I remember with great clarity, that the New Zealand public had been deluded, that we were running a surplus in the government's accounts and the balance sheet was fine. And you recall that the Minister of Finance and myself announced sometime in the next following months the introduction of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And that was to require the Treasury before every election, not the government, the Treasury themselves, to release an update on the economy so no, fu no future elections could be run on that fraud. Why does it still make you so angry? Because the lie was so big. Because it derailed your prime ministership early on. Well, it, it derailed New Zealand. I mean, it was, it was so dishonest. They'd part privatised the bank. I presume they took their eye off it, though they owned overwhelmingly 80% or something. Uh, and they let it get into lending practices that were non-sustainable. Simple as that. Just to push back on that a little bit, the bank had reported big losses uh, quite recently. You must have known that there was some trouble in the bank, at least at the BNZ, because it had never a suggestion, though, that it wasn't solvent. The only time that suggestion came was Sunday afternoon after the election. And um, it was, uh, yeah, rather shattering advice to receive uh, just after you had the euphoria of a very big election result. So, as I've said, my electoral honeymoon lasted 17 hours and then we had to get down to the hard grinds. So then you come forward and we had to bring through some very tough measures. Tougher than anyone anticipated. For new Finance Minister Ruth Richardson, already keen to extend Roger Douglas's neoliberal reforms into social welfare, the threat of the BNZ collapsing was a political opportunity. For Bolger, it was a crisis and required drastic action, starting with a broken promise and the most controversial decisions of his Prime Ministership. It is very clear that we must stop deluding ourselves about our wealth and stop spending money that we do not have. Well, you had to look at spending. And we did, and we reviewed a variety of the benefits that um, people were entitled to. We reduced some of them, uh, tried to do it as fairly as we could. And, of course, the huge controversial issue, which people still don't forgive me for, we backtracked on our election pledge that we'd get rid of the surtax on superannuation. Because morally, I could not justify to myself that we would give a tax concession to the wealthy retirees, which removing the surtax would do, while we were taking some off those who are much, uh, much poorer circumstances. That was morally unacceptable to me, and I wouldn't do that. Now, as I say, some have never forgiven me yet for not taking off the surtax, but I, I sleep comfortably on that because I know it was absolutely the right thing to do. That was a big hit on your credibility that you took personally, because you had said no ifs. Correct. No buts. Hmm. No maybes. Hmm. Absolutely. There was no, no equivocation on that. But that was the right thing to do, rather than giving money to those who could survive quite well without it, well, you're taking it from those who are struggling. Couldn't justify that if you're talking about a fair and equitable society. And, and uh, those retirees who uh, sort of never forgave me, well, that's, I'm sorry, but uh, we have to deal with the cards we're dealt with. And clearly the cards we're dealt with on election day or the day after the election in 1990 were vastly different than the cards that were allegedly on the table the day before. 
The way National played its hand saw benefits cut five days before Christmas 1990, on average by about $25 a week. Howls of outrage said the government went too far, so did it. I haven't uh, reflected in that detail at all. Uh, can, I, can, can I ask you to? You can always, no, no, you can always go back and say, well, maybe we could have done it with $20 a week or $18.50 or whatever it is. What we tried to do, and we tried very hard to do it as fair as we could, is to say, how do we address these issues? And uh, we did it in that manner and took the hit on uh, my personal, but really the government's uh, credibility by not removing the surtax and giving it to the wealthy. So, you know, those were calls we made. You have to weigh the issues on the circumstances of the time. We're talking 1990. I think we made it as fair as we could, but you can always revisit and come to a different conclusion. Was the welfare state too bloated? Was there not enough motivation to work? Was there some no. moral component of that? No. No, in fact, uh, the Dominion had a wonderful headline, Welfare State in Tatters, which is a little over the top, I'd have to say, given the welfare state is still alive and well and vigorous in New Zealand today, and it was then. It was necessary adjustments, and any number of economists will come to a different mixture. That's inevitable. And necessary adjustments to face the reality. The reality was New Zealand was running out of money. Like it or dislike it, that was the reality. A lot of people will point to that year as the time when the gap between those who have money and those who don't have much money at all really started to open up, inequality if you like. Well, Do you accept that? No, because if that was so, there's been another 20 years almost, uh, well more, uh, to rectify it. I mean, if that was an overcorrection, then governments, my own and two others, have had any number of opportunities to correct that Do you think they when should've? they weren't confronted with the uh, drama of the BNZ and many, many other things. It wasn't only the BNZ. I mean, no. the whole of the books were sure. were shonky. These were very controversial decisions, weren't they? And um, some pretty significant changes there. To what degree was Treasury, Ruth Richardson, driving the mother of all budgets in 91? And to what extent was Jim Bolger driving it? The, the simple answer is, of course, every decision that went before Cabinet and then into the public as policy was um, passed through the Cabinet and I lead Cabinet as Prime Minister. So there's no question mark that uh, somehow either the Minister of Finance sneak something around the back door. And, I mean, uh, what we agreed to, we agreed to and went on with it. But, I mean, I knew and everybody else knew where Ruth's position was on economic matters. The only thing that was... Unexpected that um, she would be producing a first budget within a few weeks of being elected to government in 1990. That was known. I mean, I had announced earlier that she would be the Minister of Finance before the election. Why had you done that? Why did you appoint her as Minister of Finance? Because I believed in the circumstances we would inherit broadly and to give confidence. I mean, they've got to really look at... I guess a big chunk of the traditional National Party who uh, thought that Roger Douglas's policies were a great gift from God uh, and they were making money out of them and therefore it had to be a great gift from God and they, uh, they wanted to be certain in their mind that, um, that we were going to continue to run a tight economic ship. But, but you're saying that you wanted to show a continuity. Well, I wanted to show continuity. I, I wanted to show continuity in certain aspects of economic policy.
So, with Richardson, do you regret appointing a finance minister? No. No regrets there? No, I've got no regrets on that. I mean, uh, I think we did a lot of good things in those first three years. In that same mini-budget, National moved on its other contentious reform, the Employment Contracts Act. Whereas Longy and Douglas had kept away from the labour market, the new government had no such compunctions. These were changes that Bolger had wanted to make since he was Labour Minister back in 1975. The uh, Minister of Labour in that era was the chief, um, I guess, wage negotiator in New Zealand. All major disputes ended in his office or her office, but I think they're always his. Was it actually a situation where the minister and a union leader would be sitting, I presume, in your office, trying Absolutely. to work out what a sector would be paid and actually working it out yes. into the dead of night? Yes, I mean, uh, when I became minister, I remember Rob Muldoon, as prime minister, and said, Jim, I'll give you that big office there on the ground floor because you'll have it full of all sorts of people. I think he said all sorts of thugs, in fact. Um, and uh, he could say sometimes we did on both, from both sides. So yes, we would negotiate endless hours. The media would be camped outside the door. What we had was totally dysfunctional. And um, there was no other way of putting it. Uh, we all recall, those of us old enough, that the ferries used to go on strike when the school holidays started and these sorts of things. The meatworks were the, probably the worst place and they had strikes every week. And it was terrible in terms of the farmers, in terms of the stock. They would be transported to Auckland or somewhere and then be sent back three or four days later, having never got off the trucks. Uh, the Humane Society would be all over it at the moment. So by May 1991, with unemployment at 10% and huge protests nationwide, Bolger, with Bill Birch, had pushed through the new law. It meant the end of compulsory unionism and those sector-wide awards and the beginning of individual contracts. National promised more freedom and flexibility, but it devastated the union movement. Membership almost halved within five years. Long before the 1990 election, we had drafted the outline of the legislation, the Employment Contracts Act, to put greater responsibility back on the individual leadership in the unions and in the employers rather than the central bodies. And uh, of course it was controversial and uh, our Labour opponents said it was terrible and it was vicious and all the rest of it. But now for years we have very few strikes. People go to work, they know they're going to be employed, they know the job is there, they're not going to be on strike, they're not going to be on the picket line. People know the buses and the ferries and everything else will work. I mean, it's such a dramatic shift. And I think it's arguably one of the uh, shifts that made the biggest input into the success of the New Zealand economy. I mean, it's had its ups and downs, but uh, since 1990. So you would credit that legislation as one of the major elements of New Zealand's economic reform and, in your view, economic success over that time? Without question. And it was interesting that the... Uh, Helen Clark Labour government only tittle around the edges of it. People would argue that it has dramatically reduced union participation in New Zealand. Did you think it would have that impact? We're now something below 20%, aren't we, in terms of participation in unions. Indeed, was that the desired effect? No, that wasn't a goal. I mean, I've said endlessly that uh, unions had a role and a function to play. I absolutely believe that workers have 
absolute right to organise themselves, to have a common voice if that's what they want. And, um, and I could argue that, in fact, the unions are probably too small now to have the influence they should have. Really? You believe they're too small? I think they probably are. I haven't studied this, but I mean, really, what the, what the employees, what the workers have to decide is what they want as their voice. Do they want a different voice? I mean, there's no question looking at the world today that there is a growing imbalance between the few who get all the money and the rest who don't. I mean, that's documented everywhere and it's leading to the uh, disruption in political systems across the world or across the developed world. There's also some evidence that wage growth was possibly kept low by the Employment Contracts Act. Do you accept that? Oh, probably in the early stages. Uh, but then we had to make adjustments to an economy that was heading for bankruptcy. But I mean, the, the simple fact is that um, we had enormous imbalance in where wealth was going back then. We then had, uh, it all ended with the 87 crash and um, what used to be considered a rock solid stock market shares dropped by about two thirds to three quarters to four fifths. And it all collapsed in a mess because it was all just held up by, frankly, bullshit and hot air and, and no substance. And uh, that's what we inherited. So you had to make change. But after almost a decade of constant revolution, New Zealanders were weary heading into the 1993 election. Having promised the decent society, Bolger had delivered benefit cuts, labour protests and broken his surtax promise. He and his government were unpopular, yet his saving grace was that he was up against a Labour Party still unforgiven and at odds with itself. After a frantic campaign between Bolger and Mike Moore, election night was too close to call. What I could have said was bugger the pollsters. It'll be a long night for Mr Bolger and Miss Richardson, but it won't be as long, as cold a night, as it has been for all the young people in this country since they were elected. From a backroom at the Tikuiti Arts Centre, Jim Bolger picked up the phone and called his opponent. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike was uh, not in good space. And uh, he uh, obviously had pinned his hope on winning. Labour had led all through the three years, just about. Uh, didn't happen. This might sound like a redundant question, but you called Mike Moore because it'd usually be the other way around, wouldn't it? Yes, but life was different because we had a we had a, a split in New Zealand. The polls were the, the parties were about even. Uh, there was no government was going to be elected that night. I think David Longy said that it was the best speech I'd given ever. Was the speech I gave to the nation that night to get calmness and sense to the country. We just kind of wait a little longer before we. Uh, before we knew who was government. Was not the 93 election result a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a pox on both your houses? Uh, it was certainly... Uh, uh, well, it was a miracle we got back because we'd been so far behind. I was saying we, we were going through Europe when the worst poll came out and I think we were 21% or something. And your personal ratings had a ma massive hit. Oh, well, they were the lowest in polling history, you know. I mean, you had 7 8 9% preferred PM. I'm going to say, lowest in polling history. I, nobody will beat me either. I mean, uh, <laughs> I've got that, I'm sure, forever. Um, but that comes back to then having the conviction and the courage to say, yes, this is working, it will work, and I can sell it to the New Zealand public. 
But there was one thing that Bolger decided he couldn't sell to the New Zealand public. Another three years of Ruth Richardson as finance minister. The time has come to recognise that the big moves are behind us and a different style of management is called for. Well, I just believe that Ruth's skills uh, were not going to be applicable, suitable, empathetic with a different parliament. When you have a parliament with a huge majority, you've got one thing. When you've got a parliament with a razor-thin majority, and you know that's going to change, you know in the lead-up to MMP a few months later on, well, three years later on, but the process was starting then, that night, uh, you would need different personalities and different skills. And I believed I had such a person in the Cabinet, and Bill Birch, who would be able to manage that... Big call for you... Yes? ..to do that. Uh, I didn't expect Ruth to leave, but when she decided she was going to leave, well, there was life. I had exactly the same problem with Rob Muldoon, who wouldn't accept a position outside Cabinet, so he left. I don't know. The two R's had somewhat similar personalities in a way. After the drama on the night, Bolger ended up with a working majority of just one. But overshadowing all that was the fact that New Zealanders had voted to ditch the first-past-the-post electoral system in favour of proportional representation. The MMP era had begun. I think it was a mistake to run such an important referendum, constitutional referendum as MMP alongside a, a general election. I think the issue is so big it should have been separate. I didn't think that at the time, and it gave no thought to it, actually, you know. You're looking for what is the simplest and cheapest way to do it. But on reflection, I, uh, I think that was a mistake. And I think you reflected that MMP had come early, in a way. It had. I don't know how many coalition governments have formed in that period between 93 and 96. I mean, you had the right of centre party formed, you had one Christian Conservative and then you had another Christian party formed. Then a whole keep. bunch went off and formed the United Party or something. And each, each and every time I had to form another coalition government. <laughs> you know? back, to, back to MMP. You were never a supporter. No. Now, I, uh, I thought um, MMP was... I, well, let me go back one. I strongly supported moving to some form of proportional representation. I thought the first past the post had demonstrably um, gone to the end of the road as far as it was... And that was particularly in 81, when social credit got about 20% of the vote and two seats in Parliament. You can't say that as fair representation, no matter how you mix or mangle your words. Um, so proportional representation I was uh, interested in. Um, I was more interested, however, in terms of the structure of Parliament to have an elected second chamber, to get the balance in Parliament. We're the only sort of Western-style democracy of our kind with a single house. Doug Graham, my good friend Doug Graham, and I uh, reflected once or twice or three times whether or not we would have an elected second chamber that would be 50-50. Māori, non-Māori, to reflect you know, the partnership concept which the uh, Court of Appeal had articulated in the judgment that uh, Justice Cook had brought down uh, was the intent of the treaty. How far did that proposal go? Between Doug and myself and about nobody else because, you know, it clearly wasn't going to uh, get uh, traction within the party or, frankly, within society. Would but you like to was... have that today? I think we're making great progress where we are today, so why upset it? Do you think MMP has been good for New Zealand on the balance? We had to move to something, and it's much better than first past the post. 
Uh, I think one of the factors that has meant that New Zealand has not got into some of the turmoil like the United States, for example, or even uh, Britain with Brexit, is that in fact there is a multiple party system and people can express their views to different parties who have different values, different policy ambitions and agendas. And I think it has been a uh, very valuable asset for New Zealand going through this uh, quite tumultuous period in world, world affairs. Yeah, because you don't waste your vote in that sense, do you? I mean, if 20% of America votes for one candidate, they might not have any representation None at all. Not at all. And that, that pressure builds up, right? Yes, and that's exactly my point. The pressure builds up. And, of course, America, which is almost ultimately the two-party system and only 50% ever vote on a good day, so they have almost abandoned democracy. It's a terrible thing to say. But, you know, when you're only getting 50% vote, they're getting close to abandoning democracy. That's a big call. You were ambassador to America. You've got a lot of knowledge of Mm. America. You're saying that America has almost abandoned democracy. Well, I'm just going on the facts. If half of them don't bother to vote they are saying it doesn't make any difference. And if you're saying it doesn't make any difference, then you're saying the system doesn't work. That's just a logical equation. I'm sure Americans who do vote believe that's a total false analysis, but I believe countries that have very low voting, and our voting is falling, have to ask some hard questions. Why do a sizable proportion think it's not worthwhile? And I think that's a hard question that most political parties want to avoid. Now, Australia resolved that a long time ago. They made compulsory voting. What do you think about that? Well, I used to oppose it. I'll be perfectly honest. But now when I look at the world, I'm wondering whether, in fact, it's not a requirement of citizenship that you vote. You believed, as I understand it, uh, that we no longer needed the Māori seats if we had MMP and, at the time you went back and said that you were wrong to agree to five Māori seats rather than them being abolished. Is that still your The position? Royal Commission said uh, with uh, MMP and uh, the Māori Party being able... The Māori, rather. Māori's been able to form their own party, then um, the five special seats, which have been there for an awful long time, uh, no, long, no longer were required. Uh, I disagreed with the Royal Commission at that time... But now when it's very clear that Māori can establish their own party, uh, more than one party, in fact, uh, I think the need now for separate Māori seats designated as such is, is passed. And you were very early in terms of knowing that those strategic deals in Ohariu, Belmont, Wellington Central, wherever it was going to be, you were a very early adopter of that being the strategic reality of MMP, weren't you? Well, if you've got a new system, you better understand it. And uh, I believe I did understand it. And frankly, not that hard to understand if people think about it, but most don't. Many out there today don't even think about it. And we've still been having these conversations over the years. They've yeah. been termed dirty deals. Yeah, and, all the rest of it. So we, we, we collectively, by a small margin, brought MMP in as our system then we have to bring everything else that goes with it. I mean, parties aiming to form the government, uh, reaching agreements or arrangements with other parties to assist that, I mean, the Green Party didn't stand in the recent by-election because they want to assist Labour win. I mean, these are realities under MMP. 
As Bolger began wrestling with this new way of doing politics, he began asking New Zealanders to wrestle with some much older issues. Honouring the Treaty of Waitangi, previously a catch cry of the left, became perhaps the defining legacy of his time in power as he took his party in a new direction on race relations. I, uh, I don't know where you put the starting point of uh, me looking seriously at what we hadn't done in New Zealand. And I often use the starting point of the early Waitangi Day celebrations that we used to attend as members of parliament. And in the early days, it was the slogans were the treaty is a fraud. And on reflection, of course, they were absolutely right because what the treaty promised hadn't been delivered. To that extent, it was a fraud. And then it moved and shifted to honor the treaty, which is really where I think you could say the work that I and others have done has moved to take New Zealand with us to honour the treaty, the commitments that were entered into it. And what we're really talking about is New Zealand's honour. I mean, people try to get the word and will they mean a bit of this and mean a bit of that. But there's no question what the intent was, that there should be a respect and understanding and acknowledgement that Māori were here first, that they owned the assets of the land and so on. I mean, this is not in dispute by any half-reputable scholar. So we then had to move from that point to what do you do about it? Bolger's first step was the Sea Lord deal in 1992, a political opening too good to miss. First was a bit opportunistic. We were settling the ocean fisheries and, and there was a sale coming up of a, about 20% of the total quota, which was my judgment and estimation about what should be allocated to Māori. And uh, so I invited in, I was Prime Minister, I invited in three of the senior Māori leaders to my office and through a long evening session into the night. Um, Doug Graham came in from time to time, Doug Kidd was Minister of Fisheries came in from time to time, but essentially it was me and the three leaders. And uh, we reached the bare bones of the agreement that this is what we would do. And uh, Over the night? Yes. Years of debate about how Māori would divide the quota followed. Yet, if anything, efforts to settle compensation for land confiscations or raupatu created more political risk. In 1994, Bolger tried to cap the cost of settling grievances in what became known as the fiscal envelope. We started then with Tainu. Let me take you back one step. Because we're having discussions in government how much this should cost. Uh, Treasury and then Minister thought very little. Uh, and at one cabinet committee meeting where this was being discussed, uh, Doug was clearly distressed at how little was being suggested. And he turned to me and said, words to the effect, well, what are you going to do, Jim? And I said, well, I'm not walking away. I have no intention of walking away. And I don't know what is the right amount, but I suggest we should start thinking of a billion dollars, and then we can start talking to the big claimants and start to work things out. And just to put that in context, um, the reading I've done suggests that Ruth Richardson started at zero and moved to 400 million. Is that the sort of context that you remember? The 400 sound about right. I doubt if zero is right, but I mean, uh, um, I'm not sure it was as high as 400 million, to be honest. In other words, very little compared to... Relative to the need. Despite heated hui and fierce protests, negotiations continued, and in 1995, Tainui settled with the Crown for $170 million and a formal apology for the invasion of the Waikato. 
That broke the logjam and Naitahu followed suit the next year. But as the 1996 election approached, unease within party ranks was growing. When we started to make uh, progress in the settlement of Ngātahu, um, we were getting closer to the uh, 96 election. And the members of the party in the South Island, including members of parliament and senior people in the party, got terribly nervous about settling before the election. This would cost us all sorts of votes, etc. They threatened you, didn't they? They wrote to you and... Well, they wrote me a long letter, but I've had lots of long letters. Long letters are not Essentially material. saying, what, you'll lose thousands of votes? Well, yes, they said we'd lose seats and votes and all the rest of it, and I told them that we wouldn't. That, um, and this is where uncertainty plays a debilitating effect on people's thinking, because they were uncertain what the outcome was. I was totally certain what the outcome was. Uh, Māori were going to continue to live as they are till they got the settlement done properly and then they'd move forward. Did that opposition extend to your own ministers? Did you have oh, to? Oh, yes. Of course I had ministers who were totally dubious about boulders uh, settling these treaty claims. And, um, but I never had any doubts that we had to do it. The fact that some found that disquieting, unsettling, was of, in all honesty, little consequence. There was a much bigger goal we had to achieve, and that was to bring honour back to the Crown, to New Zealand, that we would, in fact, carry through and do what we said we'd do all those years ago when the treaty was signed. Will these stand the test of time, or do we face the prospect of future generations saying, well, look, we, we, we didn't get enough. Entirely up to us. Uh, the question's legitimate, that if Māori still make up the great percentage of the bottom 20 or 25% in New Zealand, then you can expect someone to ask the question again, because it means that society has failed. You have a strong belief too about the power of language yes. and the value of te reo Māori being taught in schools. I said every child should be taught Māori in primary school. I still believe that. Half the countries of the world that we consider to be developing, underdeveloped, you know, impoverished nations, their youngsters are speaking three languages. We have convinced ourselves as a society that to uh, have uh, teach everybody Māori would be a terrible burden on society. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I wondered what your thoughts were when you listened to the Oriwa speech and looked at the fallout from another National Party leader, Don Brash, at that time, and was met politically with huge reward for uh, expressing his views at that point. What did you think when you saw that? I disagreed with it. I mean, but you could go right up to date and look at Don, Donald Trump. He just won the election in the United States by victimising the poor, whether they're Muslim poor or Hispanic poor. That's in essence what he's done. Uh, and uh, I just think that's a terrible, terrible way to try and run a country. And you saw the Oriwa speech in that frame? Oh, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as Trump. But it was in that frame. It is again, and, and that same gentleman was in the same space again, uh, talking about Hobson's promise or something. I mean... Uh, as if uh, somehow or other when Hobson said when he shook hands with the Maori chiefs when they signed the treaty, we are now one people. Hiwi tahi tatua, we are now one people. As if that answered everything. So we now have a right to steal all your land and your property and your goods. I mean, how absurd can you get? But some people follow absurdities. 
How do you feel about the track and progress of the Māori-Pākehā relationship now? I think we are in much better shape, but we shouldn't be complacent. There are still those who can't see any need for it, and I just mentioned one of them. I mean, there are still those who, for reasons that are beyond my comprehension, are fearful that if Māori do well, somehow or other the rest of us will do poorly. It's absolutely the reverse. And you've talked a lot about knowing who we are. I wonder whether that was the driving force behind you wanting to set up Te Papa. Without question. So here we were with no money, and we had inherited the concept, or the draft of a concept from the outgoing government of building a national, new national museum. Uh, obviously, uh, Treasury and those of that ilk said, well, we can't afford it. And that very moment, we couldn't. But my argument was quite different. We needed a museum that captured who we were as a people, as a nation, as a country, and we needed to keep moving forward with this project. We didn't have to spend much money at the beginning, and by the time we had to spend real money, we'd have the economy effect. Well, that was hard for the hardline smart people to ignore that observation. You didn't have a lot of support for this move, did you? Oh, I had virtually none. But early in your time as Prime Minister, after you just run a, won a massive election, you have sort of additional authority. So with about four or five on site and most of them confused or opposed, I declared we'd move forward. That seemed to be about a majority to me at that stage and uh, that's why we have to Papa today. That quest for national identity was underpinned by Bolger's firm commitment to republicanism, including our own Supreme Court and honours system. He didn't have the numbers in his time but laid the ground for those reforms under Helen Clark. I think you have to be brave enough to let go of some things going forward. Every child has to let go of their parents at some stage in the sense they're totally dependent on when they're very small, less dependent as they go through life. And then, you know, they have to go and make their own way in the world. But, but what stage are we in the evolution? Well, I think we're 90% there, but we still have those who like to hang on to some of the trappings. And some people love knighthoods and samehoods and so forth and so on. I mean, I... I mean, I declined one, of course, and because I just... I don't identify myself. I don't need that to identify myself. I wasn't interested in people having to call me sir. Why not? Because it didn't fit in with my view of the world. It's, it's an archaic term from a distant past. I mean, we have to sometime give up the colonial mentality. And to you, that extends to republicanism? Of course. I mean, if you're sitting down with a square sheet of paper and somebody said, draw up a, a constitutional political framework for New Zealand and you'll say, we've got it all worked out, everything will happen here in New Zealand, in the islands of Aotearoa, New Zealand, right, except the head of state will put as far away as possible. And you'd say, well, why do that? So again, we inherited it. And that's not being critical in any shape or form of Her Majesty the Queen, who I think is an extraordinary person, quite extraordinary person. And I have had the great privilege of meeting her many times. But the structure is no longer fit for purpose. While Bolger was a committed friend to New Zealand's traditional allies as Prime Minister, in the mid-1990s he made the then bold claim that New Zealand was part of Asia. It caused an uproar. When I answered a question at a big conference of a thousand economists in Hong Kong, and they were, and I was talking about New Zealand's engagement with Asia. And I said, uh, 
that New Zealand was obviously now more focused on Asia, the opportunities, the possibilities, our relationship with Asia. And someone said to me, how can you? This is from the back of the hall, a question. You're so far away. And I said, no, no. From our perspective, we are close to Asia. We see ourselves as part of Asia. Well, needless to say, that was covered. And I had all sorts of people offering to send me a map so that I could see in the world where New Zealand was. But It was could... controversial at the time, wasn't it? It was very controversial. But you see, again, you've... leaders leaders are only of value if they see a little further with the knowledge they have than others might see. I mean, that's the purpose of leadership. There's no use saying, come follow me, if you don't know where you're going. And a leader has an obligation to know where they're going. Do we miss that a little now where we seem to be driven by what the polling groups are going to say uh, and how this is going to reflect politically? Well, I think polls are a distraction. Um, they're inevitable, but they're a distraction. I firmly believe that if you are careful and you have worked on the issues and feel confident in your knowledge of the issues, going out in front and saying, come follow me on this or that particular issue is not a dangerous position to be in. Um, yes, you could say that I lost my prime ministership because first various people thought I was moving too far in front. Maybe I was. Uh, but I don't regret for a moment that I kept moving in front because from my perspective, that's the role of a leader. But just whether National would lead the country again after the first MMP election was very much in doubt as the 1996 campaign approached. On election night, National had 33% of the vote and Labour 28. It was New Zealand first that held the balance of power. Few thought that Winston Peters would do a deal with the party that he'd walked out on just three years earlier. But Jim Bolger was one of them. It could have been portrayed as a disaster for Labour. They could have said it got the lowest percentage of the vote they'd had since 1931. So I was amazed at the media's enthusiasm that uh, Helen Clark was going to form the next government. Uh, obviously she had a possibility of doing that, but uh, the sort of a slam dunk that some seemed to think was there was not realistic at all. I knew that uh, as the largest party that gave you some leverage, I knew equally that uh, with the New Zealand First, that National and New Zealand First could form a government where a Labour-led government had to have three parties in it. I thought that was a huge benefit to us. But as we know, it took two months of negotiations. But many looking from the outside thought that the what was regarded as the personal animosity between you and Mr Peters would prove the stumbling block. You had sacked him as a minister, he'd formed his own party, he'd railed against National right through that time. His number two had said he'd never sit around a cabinet table with Bill Birch or Jenny Shipley or any of these people. How was it that you came from that position to doing a deal with Winston Peters? Leadership, the skills of leadership, to bring people to the acceptance of what was the right and best way forward. And, and this took us a lot of time, and I wasn't the only one involved, but we finally, finally it happened when Winston and I sat down and had a very long discussion, right at the end of the whole of the process. Uh, Can you tell me about that? There was many gathered. We were in Winston's office, we went across to see him. Uh, many gathered. 
but they all finally drift away. There's a, there's a sense that comes into people in such circumstances that they're no longer relevant. They're redundant to this discussion and they quietly drift away. So in the end, there was Winston Peters and myself there. And we talked through the difficult days, the hard days, the harsh things that have been said, etc., and so forth, and agreed we could work. Uh, he didn't say then, he didn't say then, Jim, look, I'm coming with you, no. But I think we um, buried a lot of the ghosts of the past and uh, that led to his party's agreement to forming a government with national. You knew you had it in the bag then, do you think, that night? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, Winston played his cards uh, against his chest until the last moment. In fact, he was announcing it to the public before he really... Uh, Tohinari came across with a letter to me. I think uh, they were about simultaneously. So, no, no, Winston was always going to play it very close to his chest. Did you offer too much? No, I don't think so. I mean, it was inevitable that uh, the leader of the second party would be the Deputy Prime Minister. That was, nobody had any debate about that, so that was going to happen. And I was very happy for Winston to have, we created the Treasurer's position, I was very happy for Winston to have that. He would have uh, very strong advisors out of the Treasury uh, providing input into his decision-making. And uh, my colleague Bill Birch would uh, do a lot of the detailed work as the Minister of Finance. I knew that would work. I knew Bill had the capacity to make that work. And um, so in that space, I was very comfortable with that arrangement. Did you trust Winston Peters? Yes. I knew. When we had our discussion, we'd got rid of all that. We knew we had to trust each other. We had to be supportive of each other. And how would you describe your relationship with him? We, we worked uh, perfectly well together uh, during the uh, year or so that uh, I led the coalition government. No, no issues at all. I have absolute confidence that um, the government could have gone the three years of the electoral cycle, but then other events intervened. They did. But you knew early on that uh, you could rely on him in, in government as you started that coalition government. Yes. Not all my colleagues were so optimistic. They were resentful? They were absolutely ecstatic on the night that they were going to become... Uh, uh, part of a government again, they'd be ministers and so forth and so on, but some of them rapidly forgot that. There was still a, a wide, high level of, uh, I guess, oh, unease about the whole question of MMP. You've got to remember 50% almost voted against it. Uh, and most of those would have come from the conservative side of politics. So a lot of people found the whole question of bringing together the National Party uh, at that doyen of uh, New Zealand and the New Zealand First Party, a recent arrival on the scene, led by a mercurial personality in Winston Peters. As, you know, this is all very wonderful, but uh, will it work? So, yeah, there were people who went out there and played to that audience. You had accused him of racism during that campaign. Very strongly. I disagreed entirely with his approach to Asians in Auckland and blaming Asians on... Uh, many of the problems in Auckland. I, I cannot abide racism. I cannot abide people judging others by the colour of their skin or the ethnicity or their culture. That I find very, very objectionable. It's intuitively objectionable. And, uh, and I made that very clear uh, in one hard-hitting speech in Parliament uh, about Winston. So, yeah. Where does that come from in you? 
I just think that one of the great evils of world society is racism. And uh, we're seeing it expressed in so many different ways all around the world now. It's one of the, uh, uh, I guess, the undermining of a stable world society is racism. Uh, the falling out of uh, Brexit was because immigrants were coming in. The whole campaign in America was who can we victimise? First it was the Hispanics and then it became the Muslims. I have to say, tragically, this has a long history. Hitler campaigned to make Germany great in 1931. We know what he did. He picked on one race of people, the Jewish people, and blamed Germany's rules on them. We know where that led. So I think racism is a terrible, terrible, oh, just one of those things that we should work uh, very strongly to oppose. And do you think we were in an unsettling world environment in that regard? Well, the world is very unsettled. The world, the world... I came back from Washington in 2002 and gave a speech on the movement of people. Uh, Massey University gave me an honorary doctorate. And I said out there, in the inevitable movement of people, you have the white race of the world, which is dying out in the sense that no white country, as far as I know, has a birth rate that is replacement levels. Therefore, it's inevitable that people from other races, cultures, histories and backgrounds are going to move. And essential that they move to where the white countries are now, the European countries, if we like the term, but that's non-descriptive. And, um, and a lot of people are very nervous about that. And that's because we don't educate people in our schools to that reality. We prefer to teach our own individual histories rather than teaching the reality of the world that we're in in the 21st century. And none of this racist xenophobia that's out there will stop what's happening because it's inevitable. Countries like New Zealand and countries like Australia, countries like America, countries like all of Europe require immigrants as workers and taxpayers. Simple as that. And if we had leaders who would step up and talk about it, then we'd be in a much safer world community. Do you think that New Zealand risks these kinds of issues over immigration? It is often debated here, but not debated on a nasty level quite yet. Thank God we don't debate it at this moment. Well, we have had nasty episodes. We had dawn raids on Pacific Islanders. We've got over that now. Uh, most of them play for the All Blacks, so everybody's happy now. Um, but we had that. We certainly had that um, period when people were looking at Asian migrants as the problems of Auckland and were blamed on them. Uh, I think we are fortunate we haven't gone there, but being fortunate is not enough. We have to consciously put in front of New Zealand as the reality of what we need in this country. And we are going to be, we are, and we will continue to be, a, and more so, a multicultural society. Nobody in New Zealand comes from timid ancestors. The timid ancestors stayed home in, in their original country. That's the reality. It was the ones who had courage to come. And that's why I have extraordinary admiration for refugees. They are prepared to forego everything to try and get a better life for themselves and normally for their families. I believe it is probable that somewhere out there the son or daughter of a refugee will become Prime Minister of New Zealand such as the possibilities within New Zealand uh, if we uh, don't stop them. Do you think we should be taking more? Yes, without question. 
the government knows my view on that too. I, I just think... Uh, Did you give them a bit of an ear bashing? No, I don't ear bash them. I just occasionally, very infrequently, very infrequently, offer a comment. Um, I think the world has to address the refugee crisis with far more compassion than we have in, shown in the past. I mean, uh, we just haven't been willing to confront that reality. But after forming New Zealand's first MMP government, tensions began to rise and Bolger was forced to confront a reality of his own. The national New Zealand First Coalition was unpopular and Bolger's own MPs started to fear the result in 1999 if they left him in charge. Within a year of the election, talk of a coup started to grow. There's always those eyeing the job. I mean, that goes with the top of almost any organisation, particularly when you've been there a long time. And I'd, I was approaching 12 years, a very long time to be head of a political party. We'd negotiated the coalition. The government, I thought, was going forward well on the agreed agenda. Um, we'd lost the vote on the referendum on compulsory superannuation. And that did divide the caucus. Uh, and cabinet, and because people shifted their position. Situation was, I was in uh, Europe, and as we know, while I was away, others were plotting, and I was advised of that when I landed in Auckland. And you land on flight SQ 285 at 11.25 on November the 1st, 1997, to be greeted by Doug Graham. Doug came and told me, yeah, he was there to, uh, to meet me, and said uh, there was a leadership coup going on, and um, he understood they were claiming they had the numbers. I uh, went home, told Joan, well, she was with me on the plane, um, and, and talked to uh, the family and talked to many others and decided against having an open caucus vote on the matter, uh, which many of my staunch supporters said I would win. But I said to myself and said to Joan, we have been in this position now for approaching 12 years, 11 and a half probably at that stage. And uh, I said, no, that, uh, that wasn't what I was going to do. It would divide the party, obviously, and that I would step down. So I was probably the calmest in the room. Others were very agitated to get to clear commitments and so forth and so on. Uh, that didn't bother me at and all. There was a risk, was there not, of the coalition dissolving at that point? Well, Winston Peters was very angry and very unhappy. And he said, of course, truthfully, nobody talked to him. He was a key part of the government and nobody thought of talking to him. Um, maybe it was another example of not talking to Maori, I don't know. But, uh, and Winston was very unhappy and as we know, the coalition lasted but a short time and it fell apart, which didn't surprise me at all. Is there a sense of betrayal though? If, when something like that happens. Betrayal is a very strong word. It is. I think it's a the strong real, position, the though, real, The real word I would use is huge disappointment. So nobody had the courage to come and say, Jim, uh, when are you thinking of leaving? There's some of us think that we need to have a new leader for A, B, C and D, whatever reason that there That discussion are. never happened. That discussion never happened. Why is it done that way or why was it done that way? I mean, we had the, uh, the famous plotting and the, you know... Uh, Tapuki bypass folder and all these sorts of clandestine meetings. Is, is that the way that politics just has to be? No, uh, I don't think it does, but there you go, that's where it seems to happen. I, I don't think it does. But of course, by doing it in the messy way that we did, we then went into, uh, what, four leaders before we could win an election. 
lost the next three uh, elections in a row. Got demolished in 1999, 2002, crawled back in, in, in 2005, and John Key won in 2008. So, so it does a lot of damage when you do that? Absolutely. Demonstrably it's going to do damage. And um, the thought, if it was the thought of those who uh, engineered the coup against me, that then they'd just go on and win the next election, uh, I have no idea what they would have been basing that on. But there you go, people make their own decisions. It is quite a challenging uh, constitutional or even democratic situation, isn't it? Because in that sort of situation, the Prime Minister of the country, the leader of the country, is effectively being elected by, I don't know, in that case, 43 MPs or whatever the number was. Well, all recent examples of 43 MPs or 48 MPs or whatever electing the leader has failed. I mean, Geoffrey uh, Palmer became leader under those circumstances. Um, Mike Moore became leader under those circumstances. Jenny Shipley became leader under those circumstances and they each went to their defeat at the next election. So the public obviously doesn't buy that argument very well. Jim Bolger retired from Parliament in 1998 after 26 years, seven of them as Prime Minister. Looking back over his time, two terrible tragedies stand out. One, the second week, which was the Aramoana shooting. 13 or 14 shot dead by someone who'd gone berserk with a gun. And all you could do was walk amongst the community, the blood stains still on the ground. And it's really, there's no place you feel more inadequate. What do you do? What can you say to a community like that? You've just seen their own murdered in front of their eyes including the local policeman. So that was the first one. And then Cave Creek, uh, which in some ways might have been even worse. Uh, the platform was inadequately built. They had carted the bolts up and not used them. So the platform was held together by nails. And maybe there were a few too many young people on it or not, but if it had been built properly, it would have carried them all. So you knew that afterwards. Dennis Marshall, being an extraordinary honourable man, offered to resign almost immediately. And I said, Dennis, that won't solve anything. I want you to go back and make sure it doesn't ever happen again. That was a mistake. Not because it was Dennis's fault, honourable as any man went into Parliament, but because there was, I'm sure, in the minds of some of the hurt families, destroyed families, a sense that nobody was taking responsibility. And it's this somewhat symbolic accepting responsibility for events that you have no say over other than you're the titular head for a time being of an organisation that I think would have been more helpful to the families if, uh, if I'd accepted Dennis's offer to resign. Jim Bolger was one of New Zealand's five Catholic Prime Ministers. He says his faith helped him negotiate his way through the turbulent waters of the 1990s. That was the value system that I grew up with and what it is. I mean, the Catholic Church fails many times, but it teaches a very strong message of social justice. And if everyone was to follow the teachings of the church on social issues, then we'd have a much more 
socially just world than we have at the moment. Did, so, that, did that jar or challenge you when you were making decisions like having to reduce welfare and those of sorts course, of things? Of course, but you then have to balance that. You, you, if you know anything, you know the world's not perfect. So how do you balance, as I said earlier in this interview, how do you balance what is necessary against where do you share the pain? Do you think we did share the pain? Oh, of course we shared the pain. Uh, if you do a retrospective, can you say, well, maybe you could have shared it somewhat differently? Of course you could have shared it differently. But do you have to make those decisions with the best information you have and to the best of our judgment, we made them. If you went back over them, some of them you'd probably make differently. That's common in all walks of life. Norman Kirk once said that what people want is a job, someone to love, somewhere to live and something to hope for. What do you think voters want from political leaders? They want a sense that they have been listened to. We want to achieve, we want to be able to proudly claim a place in the world. But to do that, you have to answer the basic needs. Are we providing homes for everybody of a suitable quality? We're struggling desperately at the moment. Have we got employment for them all? Are we dealing with those who are less fortunate? I mean, one of the great challenges of the measure of a society is not how you deal with the bright people. They will always succeed. How are you dealing with those who are less gifted? How do we deal with those who, in the terminology of some, are on the margins of society? And how do you think we're doing? I think we'd get a mixed report. And I've said this as I was stepping down as Prime Minister. You judge a society in my view, on whether you're building more prisons to lock people up or whether you're building more schools or centres of learning to educate them, well, unfortunately, we're building more prisons. That is not a measure of success. And that is one of your regrets, as I understand it, that you weren't able to do more in that space. Absolutely. It? I mean, it, it, it demonstrably is a huge cross on New Zealand's record that we have so many people in prison and we're planning to put a lot more. We have listened too much to those who see solutions in locking people up for longer. The nonsense of the three strikes and you're out law is an absurdity beyond belief. There is an unwillingness of certain people of certain dispositions to learn even the simple lessons of history, that locking people up for long periods does not solve society's ills we sometimes find it difficult to look into a society and find it why it is so many are committing crimes of whatever kind or another. And uh, I think we have a lot of work to do in that space. And uh, we should get on with it. And the biggest challenge facing New Zealand today? The biggest challenge in societies like ours is to welcome in others from different cultures and value systems, histories, and religions and make them all feel New Zealanders because that is going to happen anyhow. And I think, you see, you could argue the challenges to grow the economy at X percent a year or whatever it is, and almost mundane by comparison because there's various ways you can do that. And, uh, and I think the sense of people feeling they are important in this society and their lifestyle reflects that acknowledgement of their importance. We have to listen more carefully 
to those who are left on the margins. And uh, that's a lesson we should easily learn looking across the world. We must listen to those who are left on the margin at the moment and bring them back into the mainstream. Did we get to the decent society that you strive Always work in progress. A decent society is always going to be a work in progress. I believe we made progress. 